Chapter Five of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Five. Lincoln in the Legislature. Eight consecutive years of service. His influence in the House. Leader of the Whig Party in Illinois. Takes a hand in national politics. Presidential election in 1840. A log cabin reminiscence some memorable political encounters, a tilt with Douglas, Lincoln facing a mob, his physical courage, Lincoln as a duelist, the affair with General Shields, an eye-witness account of the duel, courtship and marriage. In 1838 Lincoln was for a third time a candidate for the state legislature. Mr. Wilson, one of his colleagues from Sangamon County, states that a question of the division of the county was one of the local issues. Mr. Lincoln and myself, says Mr. Wilson, among others residing in the portion of the county which sought to be organized into a new county, opposed the division, and it became necessary that I should make a special canvass through the northwest part of the county, then known as Sand Ridge. I made the canvass. Mr. Lincoln accompanied me, and being personally acquainted with every one, we called at nearly every house. At that time it was the universal custom to keep some whiskey in the house for private use and to treat friends. The subject was always mentioned as a matter of politeness, but with the usual remark to Mr. Lincoln, "'We know you never drink, but maybe your friend would like to take a little.' I never saw Mr. Lincoln drink. He often told me he never drank, had no desire for drink, nor for the companionship of drinking men. The result of this canvass was that Lincoln was elected to the legislature for the session of 1838 to 1839. The next year he was elected for the session of 1840 to 41. This ended his legislative service, which comprised eight consecutive years, from 1834 to 1841. In these later sessions he was as active and prominent in the House as he had been in the earlier times when a member from New Salem. Lincoln's faculty for getting the better of an adversary by an apt illustration or anecdote was seldom better shown than by an incident which occurred during his last term in the legislature. Hon. James C. Conkling has given the following graphic description of the scene. A gentleman who had formerly been Attorney-General of the State was also a member. Presuming upon his age, experience, and former official position, he thought it incumbent upon himself to oppose Lincoln who was then one of the acknowledged leaders of his party. He at length attracted the attention of Lincoln, who replied to his remarks, telling one of his humorous anecdotes, and making a personal application to his opponent, which placed the latter in such a ridiculous attitude that it convulsed the whole house. All business was suspended. In vain the speaker rapped with his gavel. Members of all parties, without distinction, were compelled to laugh. They not only laughed, they screamed and yelled, they thumped upon the floor with their canes, they clapped their hands and threw up their hats, they shouted and twisted themselves into all sorts of contortions, until their sides ached and the tears rolled down their cheeks. One paroxysm passed away, but was speedily succeeded by another, and again they laughed and screamed and yelled. Another lull occurred, and still another paroxysm until they seemed to be perfectly exhausted. The ambition of Lincoln's opponent was abundantly gratified, and for the remainder of the session he lapsed into profound obscurity. In June 1842 ex-President Van Buren was journeying through Illinois with a company of friends. 
When near Springfield they were delayed by bad roads, and were compelled to spend the night at Rochester, some miles out. The accommodations at this place were very poor, and a few of the ex-president's Springfield friends proposed to go out to meet him, and try to aid in entertaining him. Knowing Lincoln's ability as a talker and storyteller, they begged him to go with them and aid in making their guest at the country inn pass the evening as pleasantly as possible. Lincoln, with his usual good nature, went with them, and entertained the party for hours with graphic descriptions of Western life, anecdotes, and witty stories. Judge Peck, who was of the party, and a warm friend of the ex-president, says that Lincoln was at his best. There was a constant succession of brilliant anecdotes and funny stories, accompanied by loud laughter in which Van Buren took his full share. He also, says the judge, gave us incidents and anecdotes of Elisha Williams, and other leading members of the New York Bar, going back to the days of Hamilton and Burr. Altogether there was a right merry time. Mr. Van Buren said the only drawback upon his enjoyment was that his sides were sore from laughing at Lincoln's stories for a week thereafter. Lincoln's eight years of legislative service had given him considerable reputation in politics, and he had become the acknowledged leader of the Whig party in Illinois. In the exciting presidential campaign of 1840, known as the Log Cabin Campaign, he took a very active part. He had been nominated as presidential elector on the Harrison ticket, and stumped a large portion of the state. A peculiarly interesting reminiscence of Lincoln's appearance on one occasion during the Log Cabin Campaign is furnished by Mr. G. W. Harris, who says, In the fall of the year 1840 there came into the log schoolhouse in a village in southern Illinois where I, a lad, was a pupil, a tall, awkward, plain-looking young man dressed in a full suit of blue jean. Approaching the master, he gave his name, and apologizing for the intrusion, said, I am told you have a copy of Byron's works. I would like to borrow it for a few hours. The book was produced and loaned to him with his thanks and a good day to the teacher, and a smile such as I have never seen on any other man's face, and a look that took in all of us lads and lassies, the stranger passed out of the room. This was during a presidential canvass. Isaac Walker, candidate for Democratic elector, and Abraham Lincoln, candidate for Whig elector, were by appointment to discuss political matters in the afternoon of that day. I asked for and got a half-holiday. I had given no thought to the matter until the appearance of Lincoln, for he it was, in the schoolroom. But something in the man had aroused, not only in me, but in others of the scholars, a strong desire to see him again, and to hear him speak. Isaac Walker in his younger days had been a resident of the village. Lincoln was aware of this, and shrewdly suspected that Walker in his remarks would allude to the circumstance. So having the opening speech, he determined to take the wind out of his sails. He did so how effectually it is hardly necessary for me to say. He had borrowed Byron's works to read the opening lines of Lara. He, their unhoped but forgotten lord, the long self-exiled chieftain is restored. There be bright faces in the busy hall, bowls on the board, and banners on the wall. He comes at last in sudden loneliness, and whence they know not, why they need not guess. They more might marvel when the greetings o'er, not that he came, but came not long before. During this period Lincoln continued to enjoy the hospitality of Mr. Speed at Springfield. After he made his home with me, says Mr. Speed, on every winter's night at my store by a big wood fire, no matter how inclement the weather, eight or ten choice spirits assembled, without distinction of party. 
It was a sort of a social club, without organization. They came there because they were sure to find Lincoln. His habit was to engage in conversation upon any and all subjects, except politics. But one evening a political argument sprang up between Lincoln and Douglas, which for a time ran high. Douglas sprang to his feet, and said, "'Gentlemen, this is no place to talk politics. We will discuss the questions publicly with you.' A few days later the Whigs held a meeting and challenged the Democrats to a joint debate. The challenge was accepted. Douglas, Lamborn, Calhoun, and Jesse Thomas were deputed by the Democrats to meet Logan, Baker, Browning, and Lincoln on the part of the Whigs. The intellectual encounter between these noted champions is still described by those who witnessed it as the great debate. It took place in the Second Presbyterian Church at Springfield, and lasted eight nights, each speaker occupying a night in turn. Mr. Speed speaks thus of Lincoln's effort. Lincoln delivered his speech without manuscript or notes. He had a wonderful faculty in that way. He might be writing an important document, be interrupted in the midst of a sentence, turn his attention to other matters entirely foreign to the subject on which he was engaged, and then take up his pen and begin where he left off without reading the previous part of the sentence. He could grasp, exhaust, and quit any subject with more facility than any man I have ever seen or heard of. The subjoined paragraphs from the speech above referred to show the impassioned feeling which Lincoln poured forth that night. Those familiar with his admirable style in his later years would scarcely recognize in him these florid and rather overweighted periods. Many free countries have lost their liberty, and ours may lose hers. But if she shall, be it in my proudest plume, not that I was the last to desert, but that I never deserted her. I know that the great volcano at Washington, aroused and directed by the evil spirit that reigns there, is belching forth the lava of political corruption in a current broad and deep, which is sweeping with frightful velocity over the whole length and breadth of the land, bidding fair to leave unscathed no green spot or living thing. While on its bosom are riding, like demons, on the waves of hell, the imps of the evil spirit, and fiendishly torturing and taunting all those who dare resist its destroying course with the hopelessness of their effort. And knowing this, I cannot deny that all may be swept away. Broken by it, I too may be. Bow to it, I never will. The probability that we may fall in the struggle ought not to deter us from the support of a cause which we deem to be just. It shall not deter me. If I ever feel the soul within me elevate and expand to those dimensions not wholly unworthy of its almighty architect, it is when I contemplate the cause of my country deserted by all the world beside, and I, standing up boldly and alone, hurling defiance at her victorious oppressors. And here, without contemplating consequences, before high heaven, and in the face of the whole world, I swear eternal fidelity to the just cause, as I deem it, of the land of my life, my liberty, and my love. And who that thinks with me will not fearlessly adopt the oath I take? Let none falter who thinks he is right, and we may succeed. But if, after all, we shall fail, be it so. We shall have the proud consolation of saying to our conscience, and to the departed shade of the country's freedom, that the cause approved by our judgments, and adored by our hearts in disaster, in chains, in torture, and in death, we never failed in defending.
In this canvass Lincoln came again into collision with Douglas, the adversary whom he had met two years before and with whom he was to sustain an almost lifelong political conflict. He also had occasion to show his courage and presence of mind in rescuing from a mob his distinguished friend, Colonel E. D. Baker, afterwards a Senator of the United States. Baker was speaking in a large room, says Mr. Arnold, rented and used for the court sessions, and Lincoln's office was in an apartment over the courtroom, communicating with it by a trap-door. Lincoln was in his office, listening to Baker through the open trap-door, when Baker, becoming excited, abused the Democrats, many of whom were present. A cry was raised, "'Pull him off the stand!' The instant Lincoln heard the cry, knowing a general fight was imminent, his athletic form was seen descending from above through the opening of the trap-door, and springing to the side of Baker, and waving his hand for silence, he said with dignity, "'Gentlemen, let us not disgrace the age and country in which we live. This is a land where freedom of speech is guaranteed. Baker has a right to speak. I am here to protect him, and no man shall take him from this stand if I can prevent it.' Quiet was restored, and Baker finished his speech without further interruption. A similar occurrence, happening about the same period, is detailed by General Linder. On a later occasion, when Colonel Baker and myself were both battling together in the Whig cause at a convention held in Springfield, I made a speech at the State House, which I think now, looking back at it from this point, was the very best I ever made in my life. While I was addressing the vast assembly, some ruffian in the galleries flung at me a gross personal insult, accompanied with a threat. Lincoln and Colonel Baker, who were both present, and were warm personal and political friends of mine, anticipating that I might be attacked when I left the State House, came upon the stand a little while before I concluded my speech, and took their station on each side of me. When I was through, and after my audience had greeted me with three hearty cheers, each took one of my arms, and Lincoln said to me, "'Linder, Baker, and I are apprehensive that you may be attacked by some of those ruffians who insulted you from the galleries, and we have come to escort you to your hotel. We both think we can do a little fighting, so we want you to walk between us until we get you to your hotel. Your quarrel is our quarrel, and that of the great Whig party of this nation.' Your speech upon this occasion is the greatest that has been made by any of us, for which we wish to honour and defend you." This I consider no ordinary compliment coming from Lincoln, for he was no flatterer, nor disposed to bestow praise where it was undeserved. Colonel Baker heartily concurred in all he said, and between those two glorious men I left the stand, and we marched out of the State House through our friends, who trooped after us evidently anticipating what Lincoln and Baker had suggested to me accompanying us to my hotel. That Lincoln had an abundance of physical courage, and was well able to defend himself when necessity demanded, is clear from the incidents just given. Mr. Herndon, his intimate friend, adds his testimony on this point. As Lincoln was grand in his good nature, says Mr. Herndon, so he was grand in his rage. Once I saw him incensed at a judge for giving an unfair decision. It was a terrible spectacle. At another time I saw two men come to blows in his presence. He picked them up separately, and tossed them apart like a couple of kittens. He was the strongest man I ever knew, and has been known to lift a man of his own weight and throw him over a worm fence. Once in Springfield the Irish voters meditated taking possession of the polls. News came down the street that they would permit nobody to vote but those of their own party. 
Mr. Lincoln seized an axe-handle from a hardware store, and went alone to open a way to the ballot-box. His appearance intimidated them, and we had neither threats nor collisions all that day. An unsuspected side of Lincoln's character was shown at this period of his life in the affair with General Shields. With all his gentleness and his scrupulous regard for the rights of others, Lincoln was not one to submit to being bullied. While his physical courage had been proved in many a rough-and-tumble encounter, often against heavy odds, with the rude and boisterous spirits of his time, these encounters were usually with nature's weapons, but in the Shields affair, duel it was sometimes called, he showed that he would not shrink from the use of more deadly weapons if forced to do so. In judging this phase of his character, account must be taken of his Kentucky birth and origin, and of the customs and standards of his time. James Shields, afterwards a distinguished Union general and U.S. senator, was at this time, 1842, living at Springfield, holding the office of State Auditor. He is described as a gallant, hot-headed bachelor from Tyrone County, Ireland. He was something of a beau in society, and was the subject of some satirical articles which, in a spirit of fun, Miss Mary Todd, afterwards Mrs. Lincoln, had written and published in a local journal. Shields was furious, and demanding the name of the writer, Lincoln sent him word that he would assume full responsibility in the matter. A challenge to a duel followed, which Lincoln accepted, and named broadswords as the weapons. General Linder states that Lincoln said to him, that he did not want to kill Shields, and felt sure he could disarm him if they fought with broadswords, while he felt sure Shields would kill him if pistols were the weapons. It seems that Lincoln actually took lessons in broadsword exercise from a Major Duncan, and at the appointed time all parties proceeded to the chosen field near Elton. But friends appeared on the scene while the preliminaries were being arranged, and succeeded in effecting a reconciliation. Major Lucas, of Springfield, who was on the field, stated that he had no doubt Lincoln meant to fight. Lincoln was no coward, and he would unquestionably have held his own against his antagonist. For he was a powerful man, and well skilled in the use of the broadsword. Lincoln said to me, after the affair was all over, I could have split him in two, but there can be little doubt that he was well pleased that the affair proved a bloodless one. The mention of Miss Mary Todd in the preceding paragraph, brings us to Lincoln's marriage with that lady, which occurred in 1842, he being then in his thirty-fourth year. Miss Todd was the daughter of the Honorable Robert T. Todd, of Lexington, Kentucky. She came to Springfield in 1839 to live with her sister, Mrs. Ninian W. Edwards. She was young, says Mr. Lamon, just twenty-one. Her family was of the best, and her connections in Illinois among the most refined and distinguished people. Her mother having died when she was a little girl, she had been educated under the care of a French lady. She was gifted with rare talents, had a keen sense of the ridiculous, a ready insight into the weaknesses of individual character, and a most fiery and ungovernable temper. Her tongue and her pen were equally sharp, high-bred, proud, brilliant, witty, and with a will that bent every one else to her purpose, she took Lincoln captive. He was a rising politician, fresh from the people, and possessed of great power among them. Miss Todd was of aristocratic and distinguished family, able to lead through the awful portals of good society whomsoever they chose to countenance. It was thought that a union between them could not fail of numerous benefits to both parties. 
Mr. Edwards thought so, Mrs. Edwards thought so, and it was not long before Mary Todd herself thought so. She was very ambitious, and even before she left Kentucky announced her belief that she was destined to be the wife of some future president. For a while she was courted by Douglas as well as by Lincoln. Being asked which of them she intended to have, she answered, the one that has the best chance of being president. She decided in favor of Lincoln, and in the opinion of some of her husband's friends she aided to no small extent the fulfillment of the prophecy which the bestowal of her hand implied. Mrs. Edwards, Miss Todd's sister, has related that Lincoln was charmed with Mary's wit and fascinated with her quick sagacity, her will, her nature, and her culture. I have happened in the room, she says, where they were sitting, often and often, and Mary led the conversation. Lincoln would listen, and gaze on her as if drawn by some superior power, irresistibly so. He listened, but seldom said a word. Preparations were made for the marriage between Lincoln and Miss Todd, but they were interrupted by a painful occurrence, a sudden breaking out of a fit of melancholy or temporary insanity, such as had afflicted Lincoln on a former occasion. This event has made the subject of no little gossip, into which it is not now necessary or desirable to go, further than to mention that at about this time Lincoln seems to have formed a strong attachment for Miss Matilda Edwards, a sister of Ninian W. Edwards, and that the engagement with Miss Todd was for a time broken off. In consequence of these complications, Lincoln's health was seriously affected. He suffered from melancholy, which was so profound that his friends were alarmed for his life. His intimate companion, Mr. Speed, endeavored to rescue him from the terrible depression, urging that he would die unless he rallied. Lincoln replied, I am not afraid to die and would be more than willing. But I have an irrepressible desire to live till I can be assured that the world is a little better for my having been in it." Mr. Herndon gives his opinion that Lincoln's insanity grew out of a most extraordinary complication of feelings, aversion to the marriage proposed, a counter-attachment to Miss Edwards, and a revival of his tenderness for the memory of Anne Rutledge. At all events his derangement was nearly if not quite complete. "'We had to remove razors from his room,' says Mr. Speed, "'take away all knives and other dangerous things. It was terrible.' Mr. Speed determined to do for him what Bowling Green had done on a similar occasion at New Salem. Having sold out his store on the 1st of January, 1841, he took Lincoln with him to his home in Kentucky and kept him there during most of the summer and fall, or until he seemed sufficiently restored to be given his liberty again, when he was brought back to Springfield. His health was soon regained, and on the 4th of November, 1842, the marriage between him and Miss Todd was celebrated according to the rites of the Episcopal Church. After the marriage, Lincoln secured pleasant rooms for himself and wife at the Globe Tavern, at a cost of four dollars a week. In 1844 he purchased of the Reverend Nathan Dresser the plain dwelling which was his home for the ensuing seventeen years, and which he left in 1861 to enter the White House. End of chapter 5 Recording by Bill Borst